Hi, this is Joel Morgan, the voice of Valley City State University in Valley City, North Dakota. I think it's safe to say that every broadcaster's goal is to be the best they can be at their craft. But just like anything else, if you don't have a game plan, it's hard to execute. Looking to set my goals for the upcoming season, I submitted my audio to the critique crew at SayTheDamnScore.com. Within a week, I got back a written critique which included areas of improvement, my strengths, and a fresh set of ideas to help improve my broadcast. With the help of the critique crew at SayTheDamnScore.com, I now have a game plan for improvement. So I suggest if you're looking to get better, step up your game and get a fresh set of ears on your play-by-play, visit SayTheDamnScore.com today. I Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 60 of the Say the Damn Score podcast, a bi-weekly podcast about the sports casting industry. As you heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a play-by-play broadcaster in South Dakota. I met today's guest several years ago at the National Sports Media Convention in North Carolina. He has been the voice of Bradley Braves basketball for 39 years. Dave Snell, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's a great time of year. I wish the, uh, the Braves were playing, but they're building a program, and uh, they're in year three. They've gone from 5 to 12 to 20, and uh, so things are uh, much better than they were before Brian Wardle arrived. So uh, now I just enjoy watching basketball. I'm a, I'm a big fan of everybody, and uh, well, some more than others, but uh, any, anyway, that's a great time of year. Did I get my number right at 39 years of the voice of the Braves? Yeah, I started in the 79-80 season where Bradley had won very few games the year before in the first year for Dick Versace, if you remember that name. And uh, the first year they wound up winning the uh, Missouri Valley Conference uh, tournament that year and went to the NCAA for the first time since uh, 1954 when they finished second in the nation. That was a time when the NIT was actually bigger than the NCAA tournament. And um, Bradley finished second in, in 50 and then 54, and then began a series of uh, NIT championships, the last one of which was in 82. But they went to the NCAA in my first year, played Texas A&M in Denton, Texas, and uh, had the ball with the game tied with about 10 seconds to go. And... Uh, one of a kid named David Goff, I'll never for, forget it, jumped a passing lane and got a layup and was fouled. Missed the shot, but was fouled, made two free throws, and that was a quick exit for the Braves in their uh, first their uh, first trip back since 54, and that was my first game in the NCAA that first year. So uh, my first year, actually, uh, uh, earlier in the year, my the first one I broadcast was uh, in Anchorage, Alaska, at the Great Alaskan Shootout, which was a new tournament at that time, and it was uh, Bradley in Kentucky. So uh, that was quite a ways to uh, break in. Sam Bowie was their uh, main player at that time. So you mentioned that you're just watching basketball right now, and I, I don't speak for everyone else, but as a broadcaster, when you get to just sit down and watch a game, it always seems kind of weird. What goes through your head when you're just a spectator? 
Well, usually if I'm sitting with someone, I, I, I yell things like ball screen, watch the back door, you know, things like that. Just, just talking through the game, which I usually watch the ball anyway. And, uh, I'll say that, you know, they're the way they're set up, uh, for an inbounds play, they're going to do this or, or that. And I usually drive the person next to me crazy, but, uh, it, it makes for good conversation with that, that person. If I don't know them, or if, uh, I go with my brother or somebody that I know, they, they, uh, know what to expect. But the great, the, the thing about it is, and I used to have season tickets with the bears. I can't, I never can applaud at a game because you're so conditioned to call the game and, you know, you, no cheering in the press boxes, they say. So it's difficult for me to cheer or root for teams when I go to a game. Did it affect your fandom in general? Because I know, I mean, there's a few teams that I still consider myself um pretty diehard fan of, but I certainly don't let it ruin my day like I used to if, uh, for example, the Nebraska Cornhuskers lost. And I feel like a lot of that's due to my path into broadcasting, just because after so many games, you just get more perspective on the fact that they matter, but they don't lead to happiness in life. I don't really, I feel like that's not very eloquently stated. What do you think? No, I know exactly what you mean, because I always say, because now where we have message boards and uh, Twitter and all of those social media type of things, it gives people an outlet and many times uh, anonymity so they can say just about anything they want to about a broadcaster, about a team, about a coach, and gives them license to say anything in anonymity. And uh, when people... uh, get so wrapped up in it and use sports to decide whether they have a good day or a bad day, then it's way out of whack. And uh, you should, you should enjoy it, root for your team, but realize that uh, it's not all uh, seashells and balloons. That's, that's not realistic. You're going to lose sometimes. And sometimes you, a team or a coach loses that, that loses a game learns more about the losses than they do the wins. They usually hurt more. Uh, I had to kind of look at sometimes winning is the antiseptic that, uh, that keeps you from having that feeling of depression when you lose. But uh, I have come to say this is a game. Sure, you're, you want your team to win, but if they don't, there are – all you have to do is visit a children's hospital and realize that whether a team wins or loses really isn't as important as you think it is. Do you read negative comments about yourself on message boards or social media? I stay away from it just because of that reason. Um, You have a person that uh, can be sitting in a basement in their underwear spouting off all of these things uh, as if they are a, a CEO of a company. And if, if you let that, it, first of all, the reason I don't read it is because I don't want to grace it. Uh, if you let that affect you, and there are some people that do, 
then uh, it's just a, a road that I won't travel down. I like people to criticize my work because that's how you get better. But I need to respect those people, and I need to know who they are. If if somebody comes up to me that I know and I say, you know, are you seeing the game that I'm describing because I do radio, I, I want to know those things. I want to know, am I on top of time and score and uh, where the ball is located and uh, the, the three things that you always remember at the end of the game, how many timeouts, who has the possession arrow, and uh, what's the free throw situation. It, all of those things go into the uh, mixture of uh, a good broadcast. And if you start slipping, you have to have somebody to tell you, hey, you know, once you think that you've got it made and that you don't make any mistakes is when you start making mistakes. So many places to go from there. When was the last time that you did have someone, you know, that you trusted and respect come to you and say, hey, you're slipping here or slipping there. Do you have a specific example? Well, my, my analyst, who is a, uh, a former Bradley basketball player. In fact, he was on the last team that won a, uh, uh, a championship, a league championship. And uh, I, I always tell him, correct me, if, because you say thousands and thousands of words over a two-hour period. And sometimes you'll miss things. Uh, the reason that I like to work upstairs and not on the floor is because one, the coach's box has been expanded. So the coach will walk in front of you if you're down on the floor, sometimes but if you're near the bench, secondly, officials will screen you. And thirdly, if you're trying to describe something that happens on a weak side, a goaltend, a, uh, a post-up player, somebody tips the ball out of bounds. You can't see it as well on the floor as you can upstairs. So that's where you really have to rely on your analyst who might have just, just because he's sitting next to you might have a, a better advantage of that. And I talk to people that are blind and they help me more than anyone else because if they can see it in their head, because obviously they have no sight, but they listen, then you know that I, I know that I'm doing my job because I'm describing and painting a picture for them. So uh, the last time, it happens all the time. Uh, somebody will say, you know, uh, you could have described this this play that was negative in a more positive, negative way. You, you know what I'm saying? Uh, sometimes you can get down on a, a player or something like that. And you have to remember these are amateurs. So uh, there's a difference between between saying a bad pass and a horrific pass. You see what I mean? Yes, yes, uh, I do. There's, Logan Anderson is just, there, he's, he's having a tough day at the office asking questions on the podcast, not he's a horrible podcast host. Correct. Or, or, or you say everybody has, everybody has a game that they're not happy with. And, and a professional will know when he's had an off day. Just like a baseball player that goes over five and strikes out four times, that's not a very good day. Well, you don't have to tell him that. He knows it. Any professional that does not do the best job that they feel that they can do, nobody needs to tell them. They'll know. 
It's the day-to-day things that happen in describing uh, action that you, you need to have somebody, if you do make mistakes, point them out and then correct them. There are some guys that I listen to uh, a lot that are excellent broadcasters, but the time and score, if you're driving in a car and you don't hear the time and score, uh, Pat Hughes is great with the Cubs. If you, if you go into a, 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 in the car and you turn on a game, within 45 seconds, he gives you the inning and the score. And that's very, very important for people that tune in and tune out in, in markets where uh, radio is, is king. For example, Los Angeles, big, big markets, when you're in your car all the time and you're popping in, popping out, you want to know right away what the, what the score of the game is. So I think that's very important. And uh, I try to drill that over and over in, in my head. And I also teach it, Bradley. Uh, radio and TV play-by-play class, and um, that's that's one of the things over and over again. That's a, that's a question in and uh, in different sports that we work in. That's that's the uh, that's you unilaterally. Time and score is the most important thing you can do on radio. Television is different. Television shows it to you. My uh, professor in college. He really, he was more of a, he was a former NPR broadcaster, so he wasn't super knowledgeable about sports, but he would always say, mm-hmm. you did a good job, but say the damn score. That's where this podcast came from. So if if they didn't, yeah. hadn't heard that story yet, now people know it. But you come from the Marigold capital of the world, Pekin, Illinois, a small town in kind of central Illinois. What At what point in your life and your development, did you decide you wanted to go into sports casting? Well, it, it, it happened, um, happenstance really. I loved baseball. Baseball is my favorite sport and I played it, um, growing up just before my second year in high school, sophomore year in high school, I played a pickup basketball game and went up for a rebound and, uh, broke my finger ball came down and, and, on my throwing hand. So I couldn't play baseball for until it healed, couldn't throw a baseball. So I got involved in forensics in my high school in my sophomore year, learned how to learn um, to get over the fear of being in front of people and um, just started in radio at that point. And uh, before the year was over, I was doing high school uh, play by play for my high school football and basketball teams. And then it just took off from there. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed being around the athletes. I enjoyed the preparation, the study. And it came from just going to look at a program and knowing who the teams, uh, the players were on the teams to more precise things. And I went to, uh, then, uh, through high school, I did that, and I really was involved in, in giving speeches and things like that. And in my sophomore year of uh, college, I got a television job. And so that took me in another direction where I was doing both radio and television. 
Graduated from Bradley in 76, moved out to Phoenix and worked with the Phoenix Suns for a year. And I got to meet and talk with some of the giants of, in uh, broadcasting, Chick Hearn, Bill King, Johnny Most, those types of, of people. And Chick Hearn especially because he did Bradley basketball back in 1950 when they went to the NCAA tournament and the NIT tournament. It's the only... It's the only time it ever happened in one year. And um, I said, what, how do you prepare? What's the best way to prepare? Never forget it. Chick Hearn said the way that works for you. There is no way. There is no book that somebody wrote and said, you have to do it this way. Because what works for me necessarily wouldn't work for you and vice versa. So you take a little bit of this, you take a little bit of that. And back in the, um, I think in the late 80s, Bradley played in a tournament. Maybe it was the early 90s, in a tournament in at Michigan State. And they were supposed to play Michigan State in the championship, but they got beat the night before by Eastern Washington. So, or uh, by, yeah, by Eastern Washington. So they played Cornell in the consolation game the next night. And the broadcaster from Cornell had a, uh, what I thought was a brilliant way uh, to chart uh, and prepare for a game. So I kind of took a little bit of what he did and applied it, and you were doing it by hand at that point. That was before computers. And now I do a whole thing with computers and numbers and stat sheets and and things that, uh, that have evolved. So uh, that's kind of how uh, in 1980, I found out that uh, gentleman was uh, leaving. In fact, it was Mick Hubert, who's now at Florida. He's done two national championships in football and basketball. And uh, he left to go to Dayton and then went to, uh, to Gainesville. And uh, I took over in 1979-80 and been there ever since. I want to go back to when you were with the Phoenix Suns. What was your role there? That had to have been a unique experience. I, I don't believe you were the broadcaster. You were part of the front office, right? Correct. Um, I actually worked for Jerry Colangelo was the president at the time and a gentleman named Todd, uh, Ted Podleski, who was the business manager. And I did everything from deliver McDonald's coupons to the uh, Valley of the Sun area McDonald's, which were not as many as there are now. And um, I put up signs at the arena before the game started. I was in charge of the ball boys. I would go around to different places on giveaway nights to make sure that they all had enough uh, of whatever we were giving away. Uh, I would call and sell uh, on uh, for tickets, group sales, so I did a little bit of everything, but I did get to meet the players and Al McCoy, who's in his eighties now and still doing play by play for them. And I learned a lot of uh, tips from Al um, while I was there. And I wouldn't trade that experience for anything because I got to see the inner workings of uh, a professional organization. This was a year after they played Boston for the championship and uh, lost in six games, I believe. And the year I was there, uh, the Suns weren't very good. 
But I do remember a night when uh, the uh, New Orleans Jazz were in town, and earlier in the day, they had four of their players in a cab that got in an accident, and they were injured. So they only dressed seven players for the game last night. So I figured, hey, the Suns are going to win this one easily. Well, one of them was Pete Maravich. And I think he had 55 points that night. <laughs> and they wound up beating the Suns with seven players. So uh, that was a great experience. I did it for one year because I didn't make a whole lot of money and I wanted to get back home and, uh, and, and you know, follow my career path in Peoria, which is short, you know, near Pekin. And um, as it turns out, uh, a couple of years later, I, I wound up getting the job at uh, WMBD and, and uh, doing Bradley basketball. How did you end up in Phoenix? How did you make that connection? It just seems unlikely to go from Bradley to you know, doing all that stuff for the Suns. My uncle lived there, and I went out to visit. And uh, he went to a, uh, a church there, and uh, so did the people from the Suns. So uh, in one of the classes, there were two guys from the Suns in there, and, and I got to meet them. And that's, that's how it happened. And I also, uh, I do impersonations and, um, I sent them a tape and sent it to Jerry Colangelo and, and they liked what uh, they heard. And so I went out there and why, well, uh, uh, I, I did play by play for a guy named, um, Ethan Blackaby who owned, he was from Canton, Illinois, who's from nearby and owned the triple a franchise of the giants who played in Phoenix at that time. So uh, I actually uh, tried out for that play-by-play job and, and, and didn't get it. But uh, yeah, it's just who you know. It's all networking. It's, it was called something else then, but uh, it's called networking now, and it's one of the most important parts of the business for people to try to, to, get, to, to get where they want to go. And that's what I tell my classes. Uh, if, if you want to get a broadcasting job in, in baseball, you go to the winter meetings, you make a tape, you go to the winter meetings and you network with people. And that's how, uh, that's how you get started today. And it's kind of how I got, um, the job with, with the sons. They said, come on out here. We, we can, uh, find a spot for you. And they did huh. got into the, I, I didn't watch all the games, but I, some of them, in fact, one of the ball boys, Rick Barry played for the San Francisco Warriors at that time, I think. I think that was before they were Golden State. And his son Scooter was a ball boy, and he later became a guard at Kansas. So he was around the game all the time, and I remember that name specifically. So how did you end up going from there, and you got, uh, I'm assuming, two jobs just about simultaneously. I shouldn't ever assume in an interview, but you got the Bradley job and the WMBD sports anchor in Peoria which you did double, which you kind of double dipped with for a long time. What was the process of getting back and finding those? Well, I had done television uh, for the ABC affiliate when I was in school on the weekends. And I also was a sports information director in my senior year too. So I had a lot of, a lot of stuff going on traveling with the Bradley basketball team and then doing weekends uh, at the television station well, when I came back for Phoenix, I wound up doing play-by-play for a uh, FM 
station that had a team that was unbeaten. It was like 27 and 0. It was the best team that they'd had in the Peoria area from Morton, which is, is nearby. And the team was so good that a lot of people listened. And I was doing the play by play at that time. And also working at another radio station doing morning sports. So I was working at two radio stations at one time. And then when Mick Hubert left, because that team was so good, I'd made all kinds of tapes and people had heard me. And so, uh, since I had television experience before and did the play by play, I did Bradley. I started doing weekend sports until the gentleman left and they asked me to do Monday through Friday, uh, when I wasn't doing Bradley and, uh, the money was very good. So I, uh, I elected to do that. Unfortunately, that kept me from doing baseball because I was doing college basketball and doing television. And at that time, if I would have left, I would have had to have gone to, uh, you know, Laramie, Wyoming or Billings, Montana or someplace like that and had to start all over again and work uh, for a pauper salary just to get the opportunity to move up in, in Major League Baseball because you don't just go to a triple A team. So, uh, I was kind of, uh, I wouldn't say forced, but, uh, I couldn't afford at that time to take that kind of a pay cut to start all over again, because I was in my mid twenties at that time and, and just didn't want to start all over again. And, and I did have a few NBA opportunities. Uh, and one was because of Al McCoy. Uh, he recommended me to the Portland trailblazers. Uh, I was one of the finalists for the job. And uh, I still had NBA aspirations because I, I really enjoy doing basketball. And what happened was they elected to hire uh, for television. The radio guy went to TV and they wanted another NBA announcer as opposed to a college announcer. And I kind of lived my life by saying, you know, don't worry about things you can't control. I did the best I could. I couldn't control the decision. And I figured, you know, I'm happy where I am. So that's the way it goes. I was not supposed to be an NBA announcer. I was supposed to be right here with the Bradley Braves. And the Bradley and it, Braves have great. had a great heritage. Just, I mean, they've had some of the all-time greats have gone through there. Uh, Jack Brickhouse, Chick Hearn, Bill King, uh, a couple yes. others. I guess uh, Vince what is it? Lloyd, who did the Cubs. Uh, I mean, there. Mark Holtz, who called Nolan Ryan's last no-hitter with the Texas Rangers. Mark had leukemia and died in his 50s. He was a great broadcaster. And so many of those names, Tom Kelly, who for many years was the uh, voice of uh, of USC, did a lot of work in Los Angeles, terrific announcer. They all worked at uh, WMBD and... um, and did Bradley basketball. I just happened to stick. What does it say about that position to have that kind of heritage? Well, you know, when you, when you follow a career of a player like Hersey Hawkins, who averaged 36.6 points a game in his senior year and wins several games with last second shots and uh, was the player of the year and, and, and just or a Marcus Pollard who, played two years at Bradley and then 14 years in the NFL. 
uh, and was one of Peyton Manning's uh, targets when he was first starting out. And uh, the coaches that I've worked with, the people that you meet, other broadcasters, uh, Mike Reese, who's at Southern Illinois, he and I both have worked 39 game, or 39 consecutive years. And uh, it, it's, it's just... It's just a joy to be able to watch young men turn into men in a period of four years. And I have no children myself, but I feel like I've got all kinds of kids living all over the place simply because I watched them grow up and uh, remember most of them fondly. You mentioned that you do impressions. What is your best one? Yeah. Well, actually, my best one is a guy that I, I worked with for many years. He used to coach at Bradley, and his name is Joe Stowell, and um, he's, he's worked at camps all over the country and around the world. He actually coached the Egyptian Olympic team uh, to their qualifying, first time they ever qualified for the Olympics, and he was the coach. And then when they made the Olympics, they, somebody else <laughs> kind of took it over. Well, I could do his voice. He talks like this. He talks. He had kind of a raspy voice like this. So one time his wife uh, had to have some surgery and couldn't make it to a game at Indiana State. First five minutes, I did both voices. Coach, coach, we've got an inbounds play here, baseline right. Uh, what do you think Bradley will try to do on this uh, – inbounds play because they have several well they're probably going to set a back screen and drive their lob to the goal and that's what i do so i did both voices for about five minutes <laughs> did, was, it like a, was it like did I the audience know Excel. what's that did the audience know that you were doing both voices uh i don't know i don't think so <laughs> that's really funny what other um, ones can you do they're just I used to do a, you know, Howard Cosell and, uh, uh, you know, political voices. I love doing Ronald Reagan. He was one of my favorites. And, uh, just, I made money in, uh, in high school and college by doing banquets and doing after dinner speaking and, uh, and using those. So that was another way to network to meet people and go different places and pick up a $10 bill here and there back in those days. Is that something that you had to work at or something that you just can naturally pick up? Uh, usually if I listen to a tape and, and somebody has a unique voice, I can usually pick it up pretty quickly. So I think it's just something that I was given. Frank Caliendo is the best. <laughs> he's pretty darn good. I know I'm awful at oh, it. So. Well, everybody can try to, to impersonate somebody. And usually it was with me in school. It was teachers and, uh, and, and other kids and, uh, and cartoons and television shows and things like that. Because in those days, there were a lot of uh, Tennessee, Tennessee, no, well, not fail, the uh, Wally Cox voice. So uh, I would do just a lot of that stuff. People have no idea who these people are because they're gone. It's a new era. 
So I read that you were very close to getting to 1,000 consecutive games for Bradley that you were part of the broadcast. The articles were old, so I didn't know what your final number as far as uh, the number of consecutive games that you got to. Can you tell us what that was here quick? Yeah, it's uh, 1,214 because I've never missed a game. It, it, It is still going, and I read there was one time where you were very close to missing a game, and I'm going to let you tell that story. Yeah, uh, well, I was in Omaha, and uh, God's I was country. going through a divorce. At the, uh, yeah, I was going through, uh, through a divorce and, and uh, a lot of stress. And uh, before the game has started, I had done the uh, the pregame show, and uh, I, I just it, it finally just got to me, and and I got sick during. So uh, I couldn't finish. And uh, I wound up in the hospital, and they thought I'd had a heart attack, but it, it wasn't that. It was just all the stress I was going through. But then I picked it up uh, uh, the next game and uh, and kept on going. And how, how long do you think you're going to be able to continue to do that? Just because, I mean, I, maybe that's a stupid question to ask, but eventually it just seems like you'd get laryngitis or strep throat or something would cause you from not being able to do it. As long as my health is good, and uh, then I'll continue to do it. But I will tell you that travel gets a little bit old. Uh, uh, at first, you know, you see different places, but then when you go back to the same places, you've seen just about everything. It's uh, I uh, I look forward to going to places I've never been, and I'm a big Beatles person, so. When I'm 64, which is next year, I'm going to England and Liverpool because of the Beatles. The when I'm 64 from Sergeant Peppers, I'm, I, that's one <laughs> thing I'm going to going to do next year. I actually went to London and we found the um, the exact crosswalk. At least we were told they could have been lying. That was on the uh, Abbey Road uh, album oh, yeah. cover, and me and the people we were on a tour with tried to it's actually a busy street we tried to walk across it, it is. in a similar way and i even took my i took my shoes and socks off so i, I figured you'd respect <laughs> that yeah you were paul then yes yes uh, the other three were all uh, women you know, so we weren't can, doing you, accurate impersonations but you know what you can uh you can actually go to abbey road and and uh, google it and there is a camera there that shoots Abbey Road right now in real time. So it would be dark there. The lights are flashing, but you can see Abbey Road anytime. That's that's where technology has gone. Well, if you try to walk across it and uh, there's, it's a busy traffic day, you get a lot of one-finger waves, let me tell you that for certain. Oh, I, I, I can just about imagine. Um, one of the things that was just very briefly mentioned that I saw about you that I wanted to kind of look into more, are you colorblind? Yeah. On greens and browns. So how, uh, what I'm challenges, totally colorblind. Does, what challenges does that bring to doing a broadcast? Well, I better know what color the team is, uh, that I'm broadcasting because in high school, 
Uh, we had a, a team at Peoria Richwoods that's colors were green and white, and I, I just said that they were brown. They have brown uniforms, not knowing at that time that their colors were green. So I have trouble telling the difference between greens and browns. Have I'm you, not totally colorblind. You know, you, it used to be uh, back, uh, I was in the day of the Vietnam War, and people would try to get out of serving uh, saying that they were totally colorblind. Well, there is a test that you can take that everyone can see what the number is. So if they say, I can't see that, then they know they were lying. Mine is a, is a, is a specific type of colorblindness, picked up from my grandfather, by the way. And um, I can't tell the difference between green and brown. Sometimes I have trouble if I'm going up a hill and uh, the street lights look like green lights to me. So I have to look for red, which I can see. If I can see red, then I know I got to stop. Huh. That's certainly. So that's, the, that's how I do that. Certain Most of my outfits my, is, is red because Bradley's color is red. So when I go to work every day, uh, at the university, because I put together videos for uh, our student athletes, the athletic department. I just uh, I just pick out something's red because it's our school colors, and I can see it. Okay, Bradley in 2006 made a very very memorable NCAA tournament run. I believe they made the Elite Eight, and I'm sure that no, Sweet Sixteen, uh, Sweet Sixteen. Okay, was it Wichita that made the Final Four that year, right? There was a whole bunch of Missouri yeah. Valley teams Wichita that made it made that the year. Final Four just a few years ago, and uh, I just remember this because Wichita I was... made the Sweet Sixteen as well, Who and they the got final... beat by George Mason. Oh, okay, that was... went to the Final Four, and Bradley defeated Kansas and uh, and Pitt, and advanced to the West Regional in Oakland, where they lost to Memphis that year and then memphis lost to ucla in the regional final and ucla wound up going to the final four so what was the most memorable part about being a part of that run i'm not going to ask you like how the broadcast is different or the preparation because the preparation is all the same but certainly it's a different energy and a different experience what was the most memorable part of that well, winning the game against Kansas when nobody thought they they had a chance, um, and to watch how hard Bradley's team played because they they finished fourth in the Missouri Valley Conference and wound up being one of the last teams in. And they uh, let's see, uh, sixteen, fifteen, fourteen, thirteen. Kansas was a four seed, and uh, and Bradley was a thirteen. And uh, I think may have been the last team in. And they wound up uh, leading most of the game. A kid by the name of Will Franklin hit a, a three-point shot from about half court to the end of the half. And uh, they they more or less Kansas. Uh, and that was Chalmers played on that team. And um, I can't remember uh, some of the other Kansas players. Chalmers was their big uh, big gun then. And uh, interestingly enough, 
that Bradley team has reunited in the basketball tournament. You know that tournament they play in the summertime for $2 yeah. million? Uh-huh. Well, Bradley made the Final Four two years ago with that team. They all came back, and they they made it all the way to the Final Four. In fact, the point guard for the team, Daniel Ruffin, in the first five minutes of the semifinal game against Colorado, uh, uh, snapped his Achilles and was gone for the rest of the game. We think that had he have stayed healthy, they could have been in the championship game and played for the $2 million. That was the team that played in 2006. <laughs> so they still, there's cause at least they stayed in pretty good shape going forward then. Yeah. Cause many of them played uh, professionally in, in Europe, except Ruffin who uh, is with the boys and girls clubs here in Peoria. And he played just like he, like he'd never stopped. He went over to Germany for a year and didn't like it over there and came back. And then he picked up the ball and, and played point guard for this, uh, this team uh, two years ago. And like he'd never missed a game. It was really remarkable. Marcella Somerville, who is the only Bradley athlete ever to be on the front of Sports Illustrated. He's still playing in the highest league in France. He came back to the team, Patrick O'Brien, who was uh, drafted ninth by the Golden State Warriors after that season. He came back and played. So um, it was very interesting to watch that team play again uh, several years later, 10 years later. And they wound up nearly winning the whole thing it, it's it's that team it's it's that group that was so uh so together and and uh seeing what they had done one of the uh players that was like the defensive stopper and and rebounder is uh, a member of the SWAT team uh and, and a member of the police department in Springfield Missouri who we see every year when Bradley plays Missouri State so he was on that team Hmm. So you the just head... keep track of these guys. <laughs> the coach of that team was Jim Less, and he played at right. Bradley, was one of the best players in Bradley history, I believe, and uh, also yep. was the coach. So you probably broadcast him, I'm imagining, in two different roles. What type of relationship do you have with him? Very good. Very close. Uh, it was uh, very disappointing when he was let go here at Bradley as alma mater, and the ramifications have uh, not yet ceased. But uh, Brian Wardle is is trying to rebuild a lot of the uh, the issues after Jim's release, and you know he's won two championships in the last two years at the University of Cal Davis. They lost a championship game or a semifinal game the other night when they missed three free throws in the last 10 seconds. And so they're playing in the NIT and they're at Utah in the NIT. But Jim was uh, the Naismith award winner of uh, the best player in the country his senior year under six feet, had a uh, seven year stint in the NBA and uh, then went into, uh, it was a stockbroker in Chicago making a lot of money came back and uh, was hired as the coach of his alma mater and wound up taking him to the Sweet 16 
and a couple of NITs. How did so, you uh, handle the controversy that came with that on the air? Because obviously you have that fine line between your personal feelings and the feelings of your employees. How do you tiptoe that line? It was very difficult. It was very, very difficult. Now, he was uh, dismissed after the season was over. Uh, but um, you cannot, you must have the trust of the head coach as a play-by-play man, because if you don't have that, then you're, you're powerless. And so I've had good relationships with all the coaches because they know that what something that's told to me in, in private, that's not to be released, you don't break that bond. So, um, I was very, very disappointed, but, uh, when it came time to be on the air, um, you know, I've got a job to do and that's describe how the team plays, but I, it, I do not use my forum, uh, to, um, to politicize anything. My job is to describe what happens and uh, not get involved with the rest of it. But that was a difficult time. In fact, uh, every coach from Chuck Orsborne who left Bradley in 1966 to now has been fired from Bradley. Hasn't left on his own accord. So uh, I've had to go through several of those and they've all been difficult because you have a friendship that develops, a relationship that develops. And um, that is the most difficult part of the job because if you don't win, changes are made and it affects families and careers and that type of thing. So that's the, that's the bad part of the business. And that's where the pressure to win uh, is, is so great. It's one of the things like I, that I really like about Brian Wardle is uh, he's a collection of all of the positive aspects of the other coaches that I've worked with kind of rolled into one. And um, he's a no nonsense guy. He won't take uh, anything but the best citizens. And uh, getting the degree and graduating is paramount. And uh, and when it's time to practice and play, it's uh, it's defense first and and playing hard. Defense and rebounding should always travel. And um, obviously, he's he's done the job when you go from five to 12 to 20 in three years, that's, uh, uh, I think he's very, I think he's on the road to success. Thing about it is, and it's a good thing. If he does what I think he's going to do, he'll move on with uh, more dollar signs and a bigger program. And that's what you want. You want your program to develop and and reach its zenith, which is good for the coach and good for the program and good for the fans. So the mascot of Bradley is now named after your catchphrase, Kaboom. What was your reaction when yeah. that happened? Well, I said, you sure you want to do that? <laughs> I, I didn't really know what to think about it at first because uh, I was – I mean, obviously, it's uh, it's uh, 
gratifying and it, you know, did the a phrase that I would use that would they name a mascot, which is a gargoyle, which is one of the buildings on campus is guarded by these four gargoyles. And they came up with that mascot at first, you know, we, we went through that, uh, that whole thing, uh, with the native Americans, with, uh, Illinois, you know, they did away with chief line. I well, we had to, uh, in order to be compliant with the CAA, we had to get rid of all native American imagery. And, um, at one point they thought that they were going to chop off the S in Braves and call him brave and use an American Eagle as the mascot. But, uh, the NCAA was satisfied that all of the Native American imagery was uh, uh, was taken away and let us keep Braves. So uh, they were looking for a mascot, and they had several uh, several ideas, and somebody came up with the kaboom because that's what I say when a guy dunks the ball, and and it stuck. So it's uh, certainly unique uh, as far as a mascot's concerned. Uh, you know, I'm honored, I'm flattered, but it was, it was a little difficult to get my head around at first. So I read that you collect bobbleheads. Do you have a bobblehead of yourself? Yes, I do. I got one in Las Vegas a couple of years ago (laughs) and I wanted to try to get one on a mic, uh, but, uh, they didn't have one. So since I'm a Beatles person, I put a guitar in my hand. And I cannot play the guitar. So, uh, yeah, I've got a bunch of, uh, I'm a big St. Louis Cardinals fan. I was brought up with Harry Carey with the Cardinals. My dad took me to my first game in 1963 against the Giants at Sportsman's Park in St. Louis, the initial Bush Stadium. And on the field on that day was Stan Musial, Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, uh, Orlando Cepeda, uh, Jim Ray Hart. I mean, that that was special. So that's baseball became my really first love. And I listened to Harry Carey, who did later help me in my career and uh, knew him well. And uh, so I have a Harry bobblehead. I have a Jack Buck bobblehead. I have tons of Cardinal stuff. I have Beatles stuff. I have rock and roll singers. And uh, my wife just calls it my stuff. And it's down in my man cave with my uh, three uh, big screen TVs. So uh, Thursday and Friday, I'll be uh, taking the day off and staying home and watching the NCAA tournament. <laughs> how did you meet Harry Carey, and how did he help you in your career? Well, Harry was a good friend with Pete Vanaken, who was from Peoria. He actually met Pete because he used to do St. Louis Billikens basketball in addition to Cardinal baseball at KMOX in St. Louis. And he came and met Pete who was at a concession stand and they went out that night and uh, left the next morning. I mean, they stayed out all night and they became uh, good friends. Well, I would do Harry's voice because I could listen. I listened to him all the time. And so when I was a sophomore in high school, I spoke at one of these, uh, like an Elks club or something. And, uh, 
Harry Carey was a guest speaker. And Pete introduced me to him, and I did his voice. And, uh, in fact, I don't know if you remember Saturday Night Live. They they did the character of Harry on uh, Saturday Night Live. It's Will Ferrell, right? Dutchie hates it. Just hated it. And mine was the only one that she enjoyed hearing. And Harry liked it, too, because when you impersonate some somebody, that's the utmost form of flattery. So I got to, to, to know Harry. In fact, when he was with the White Sox, he said, come on up, come on up to the booth. And uh, Jimmy Pearsall was working with him. So I went in with Pearsall and did Harry's voice and worked an inning with him. So, so I just, uh, and, and Harry would put in good words for me at, at different places. And, uh, at one time he says, why are you still in Peoria? And I just, and then Pete would say, leave him alone. Harry he loves it there. He, he loves it here. We don't want him going anywhere. So, uh, so that's how, uh, I got to know Harry and, and uh, actually, have talked to Dutchie several times uh, since Harry's passing. You know, he was known for and having too, and Jack Brickhouse as well. Uh, I knew Jack real well. Harry Carey was known he for was... kind of having the over-the-top, larger-than-life persona. Do you have a couple good stories from uh, his life? Not even necessarily his career that maybe not everyone else would know that you're willing to share. Well, Harry was a terrible driver. I mean, he he would drive in Chicago and 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 get in traffic and you know, drive on sidewalks and and just talk to the police. He says uh and he uh, and I this is from Pete Benakam would tell me this. He he would constantly turn the dial on the uh on the radio to pick up different stations instead of watching where he was going driving. So, uh, Harry was a terrible driver and, uh, and, and Harry was an all night guy, but here is the biggest story. Harry, um, camel X, it has a 50,000 watt signal that goes all over the country. When I was driving out to Phoenix, I, I got, uh, I listened to a Cardinal game, uh, on the East coast and I picked it up in Albuquerque. So it, it just is all over the place. Well, one of the uh, biggest Cardinal fans was Elvis Presley in Memphis, where the Cardinal AAA team now is. It used to be in Louisville, but it, it's, it's now in Memphis. So Elvis would listen to Harry all the time. Well, Harry was in Memphis doing something, and Elvis found out about it, and he called Harry's room. This Elvis, this Elvis Presley, and Harry said, "Yeah, sure," and hung up. So Elvis <laughs> called back. He says, "Don't hang up." He says, "I'm going to send a limo for you." So Harry went to Graceland and spent the night at Graceland with Elvis Presley, simply because Elvis listened to him on KMOX and liked the Cardinals. That's a story on Harry. I'm sure you haven't heard. Have you ever had any rock stars want to want to meet you? 
<laughs> no. No. Nope. When I was looking, um, I don't remember who it was, but it said there was like a famous rock band from Pekin, Illinois. On the well, Wikipedia of course, page. you know Dan Fogelberg is from Peoria, the late Dan Fogelberg. Uh, I don't know that we had any real rockers in Beacon. Well, Wikipedia is not that known I, for being not known for being the most reliable source. So, <laughs> <laughs> now I, uh, Dan Fogelberg is about the only one that I can remember that's really made it. Now, uh, Strawberry Alarm Clock, you remember that Incense and Peppermints? It's I a do 60 not. Song. Uh, they were picked up for drugs in East Peoria, Illinois. <laughs> uh, they were performing, and they stopped there, and there was a drug bust. The East Peoria police got uh, the uh, the group, some of the group. I don't know what they what they had, but uh, well, it was Eric Brand, the guitarist from Iron Butterfly. Really? Yes, he's from 1950 to 2003. He's listed as a notable notable person from Pekin. You know, I used to do the dishes for my mom listening to Inagata DeVita by the uh, Iron Butterfly. I turned that on. on I figured if I could get, if I, I could get I the dishes it. done by the time the drum solo hit, I was in good shape. <laughs> That's the song I turn on on touch tunes when I'm leaving a place to irritate people if I don't like the bar. <laughs> Because they, they can't turn it off for 15 minutes. but Oh, it's a great touch. I love the drum solo. Yes. That, that, the, that was, and it drove my dad crazy. <laughs> it's no Ringo Starr, that's for sure, right? Uh, well, Ringo had a little bit of a, a, a his, his front people were a little better. <laughs> One of the questions I like to ask everybody is, what are your broadcast horror stories where something with a broadcast out of your control or maybe in your control that you just made a mistake as what is usually the what happens in my case, where something just goes horribly wrong or a broadcast location is awful or there's just something weird going on? Well, there were two, there were two that I can remember. One uh, was when uh, Hersey was a senior. And we were playing at Charlotte, and Coach Stoll um, had gotten a a brand new leather jacket for Christmas, and this was right after Christmas time, just before they'd start the league season. And we were playing at Charlotte. In fact, that no, that was before that we went back to Charlotte. Uh, this was the first time we we had uh, played the uh, 49ers, as they call them, and. Uh, the the phone lines didn't work. So this was back in the day that you had the great big cell phones. It was like the old get smart. Uh, they would use their phone, the, the shoe as a telephone, those great big honking things. And we had to share a phone because, and, and so we did it on what amounted to at that point, a cell phone. And there was this great big thing we handed back and forth. We had to face each other so we could hear each other because the headsets wouldn't work. And somebody co- stole his jacket from the back of his uh, his brand new jacket from the uh, that he had on the back of the seat. So I remember that night in particular. And then there was another one not too long ago. I think maybe five years ago. 
uh, it was a Sunday, and Bradley was playing against the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. This is about 90 miles from, from Peoria. My broadcast partner and I were, um, who's Chad Klein, and he, he works with me now, we're going out of town, and the temperature in November is about 73, 74 degrees. And as we're driving out of town, there's a tornado warning out, and I look back, and it is pitch black. So somebody was coming in from Bloomington, and we crossed paths. I said, you might want to watch out because there's a storm coming in, in, in that area. And by the time, about two and a half minutes after that person passed me, a tornado flew overhead and uh, wound up going to Washington, Illinois, and destroying about a third of the entire town. So we kept going to uh, Champaign, and there were tornado warnings there as well. There was a women's game. Illinois was playing Alcorn State. I'll never forget this. And their coach tried to win this this, uh, women's game by 100 points, left his starters in. And it was something like 113 to 30 something. So that was interesting. So now we get ready to set up our equipment. And we hear that back home, that tornado that we missed by maybe two and a half minutes had wiped out a third of Washington, Illinois. And they were simulcasting all five stations. Uh, to, to report on this. The only thing that we had was cell phones because we couldn't get in uh, the studio that would carry our broadcast was in an emergency situation. So Coach Stoll and I had to do the play, or uh, Chad Klein and I had to do the play-by-play using cell phones because of the tornado. And I mean, the destruction was unbelievable. Uh, the damage, I don't know if you've ever s- seen what one of those can do, but uh, so, and then and, and Illinois wound up, you know, winning the game easily. It was one of Bradley's bad teams. So that was, that was a memorable day. The, uh, the two worst places I've been, Beaumont, Texas, and Martin, Tennessee, there wasn't anything really in Martin, Tennessee, and Beaumont smelled like oil refineries, <laughs> and there wasn't much there either. That was Lamar. I, I read that you had um, a fun time with some pigeons. Oh yeah, you know the story about that at Furman. I do. You've done your your home. You've done your homework. Um, at that time, there were three stations doing the games. Um, and we each took turns being the official station. Well, when we went to Furman, I was the third third wheel. So I got the worst spot, and it was up in a – it had sawdust, it had it, – it never been used, but I had to go up there and, and do the play by play. And there were pigeon droppings all over the place. 
And this pigeon, there were two or three of them, were fluttering around during the during the broadcast. And one of them was like right above my head. And I wasn't sure what was going to fall on me. So that was at Furman. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget the game. Bradley did win that game, by the way. <laughs> and I did not get nailed by a pigeon. But they were up there. Who are some of your favorite broadcasters now? You've mentioned some of the people that influenced you. Who are your favorite broadcasters, maybe on a national basis, and maybe some more regional people that you know about that nationally people wouldn't know about? Well, my good friend Mike Reese, who does the games at uh, at Southern Illinois, he does football, basketball, and baseball. He is very good. He is he's a very good broadcaster. Um. There was a uh, a gentleman, and I can't remember his name, but I know that he was he's national now. Gordon is his last name, and Brandon. he was doing Evansville, and um, he called me, and his alma mater was Butler, and he said, "Do you know anybody at Butler?" And I said, "Well, yeah, I could make a call." He said, "Could you?" He said, "Because I like to." go back and do their games. Well, I called their uh, sports information director and I said, Hey, there's this guy's pretty good. That's uh, at Evansville. And he would like to apply for the job because their play by play guy had left Brandon Gordon. I think that's his name. And, uh, he wound up getting the job and it just so happens that was the first of back to back years that Butler went to the final game the Gordon Hayward shot against Duke. And then the next year, I think they were in Houston and they lost to North Carolina, if I remember right. And, uh, now he's a national, he's doing games, uh, on national television. So, uh, I think he's very good. Uh, I like Gus Johnson because I like his enthusiasm. Um, we have a lot of guys in the Valley that have been there for a long time now. Uh, Art Haynes, who does play-by-play uh, -play for Missouri State, also works on the Kansas City uh, Chiefs Network. Mitch Holtis, who does the Chiefs and um, also does the Missouri Valley, and he does other conferences as well. I think he works the Big 12. I think he's excellent. And, um, gosh, there's so many, so many people that are around that just do uh, – a, a tremendous job. And those are just ones off the top of my head. And, oh, you know, the national people, uh, Brian Barnhart does a great job at the university of Illinois. Uh, I like Dave Ennett a lot from WG or WGN or, uh, in Chicago, he does Northwestern. His daughter, by the way, studied Beatles studies in, uh, college. So I'm going to get a hold of her before I go to Liverpool and London next next week that's that's how networking works <laughs> so uh they're just a, and there are a lot of good young people uh i'm working with the uh, i do baseball bradley baseball on espn3 which gives uh young broadcasters the opportunity to work on their craft whether it be on camera or directing or producing and uh i work with a guy named uh, cody schindler who is a senior at bradley I do the first three innings. He does the middle three, and I do the last three. 
and he's a, he's going to be a star. He's really good. So that's, I like to see young people, the next generation come up and, uh, and, and work at the craft with many more tools than we had in the Neanderthal days. But it, it all comes down to the same thing, and that is being descriptive, being exciting, and make people feel like they are there. So you're known kind of throughout the industry, at least in the circles that I run with, for being one of the people who really likes to give back to younger broadcasters. You've been, uh, you teach, you've been on the national board for the National Sports Media Association. Maybe you still are. I'm not entirely sure. But what, yeah, is, it, what is it about giving back and, um, you know, helping the next generation that that appeals to you because somebody did it for me. All I'm doing is passing the torch. Somebody passed it to me and now it's time for me to help write the, uh, the future. So I can, in my golden years, I can have somebody that, uh, that I can listen to that I really enjoy because now you can listen to just about anybody because of the satellites or, uh, app on your phone. You want to listen to somebody you can, you can listen. And, um, I just think that's an obligation to it's, it's, it's paying back for the people that taught me not only to be a good broadcaster, but be a good person along with it, because, uh, there are so many egos in the business. And, um, I, I want to be the, I want to, be what my mom and dad taught me to be, and that is be a good person first and be a good broadcaster second. Well, I sure appreciate you taking a little bit of time to join us here on the Say the Damn Score podcast. Um, before we let you go, if somebody wanted to reach out to you, what would the best way to do it be? dsnell at bradley.edu. That's, that's, uh, that's my email, and I always I get a lot of... Uh, I get a lot of people send me their stuff and uh it does, it might take a little bit of time to get to it because uh we had a uh, uh a woman that uh, was just inducted into the Hall of Fame from Bradley that was a cross country runner that was a part of five NCAA championships in track and cross country and I had to produce the video for the Missouri Valley Conference and that took uh a lot of time to put together so you know, I am doing that, but, uh, somebody reaches out to me and wants me to talk about their stuff or talk about the business. Uh, I'm more than, more than willing to do that because that's, again, somebody did that for me and it's time to pay back. Once again, we are chatting with Dave Snell. He is the voice of Bradley university and Dave, thanks again for coming on. Logan enjoyed it very much. You were very, very thorough in your in your background. You knew about the pigeons, you, <laughs> and and uh, NSSA, which is now N A uh, N S M A. Uh, they they changed the name, but that's a great place to go uh, uh, for anybody that wants to be a part of uh, of broadcasting. To be a member of that it gives you a chance to rub elbows and talk with uh, uh, the giants of the business. My, Many, many more giants th th than yours truly. That uh, that uh, people that I've admired, 
you know, from Jim Nance to Joe Buck to, you know, just uh, Bob Costas, you just go on and on and on. So uh, it's a great organization to be a part of. And I'm grateful to Mitch Holtis, who uh, got me involved uh, about 15 years ago. And that is actually where we met. I can't go this year, but I, I do plan on going again in the future. It's a great place, isn't it? It really is. I enjoy it a lot. We're actually going to be going on a European honeymoon the entire month of June. So, Good for you. Where, where are you visiting? We're going to Munich. Then we're driving through yep. Italy and island hopping on Greece. Wow. You have a great time, you and your bride. Have a, have a wonderful time and a wonderful trip and be safe. Will do. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Say the Damn Score podcast. Make sure to subscribe on SayTheDamnScore.com or on your favorite podcast app. You can also find me on social media on Twitter at Radio underscore Logan and at Facebook.com slash SayTheDamnScore. Remember, next time you're on the air to Say the Damn Score just a little bit more.